A mentionable contains depictions of domestic violence, sexual assault, suicidal ideation, and pornography. This podcast is intended for ages 13 and older. We recommend parents listen through before or alongside their child. Previously on Unmentionable. I called my mom. She picked up. She encouraged me to come home. What in the heck am I going to do to make money? I find a gym. I talk to the owner. I'm really thinking I'm going to disguise myself as myself. Chanel calls me into her office. She had found me out. I should have told you I've done a tremendous amount of pornography. Like she could have fired me, but she didn't. She helped me get my license. She ended up helping me get a job at Whole Foods. It was humbling. And there were studios reaching out to me, asking me, would you do like one more? But I knew what the price would be. I couldn't do that anymore. Christmas Abbott was a really well-known personality. I walked up to her and I was like talking about CrossFit. We have an opening for a full-time coach. They hired me. Super fun working there. Constantly having to explain myself was exhausting. This girl walks in. I was like, I would love to help you. I'll put your weights away for you. She was like, I can do that myself. Shot me down. Eventually she was like, well, we can run together. I hear my mom's voice in my head. So I'm like, I'm just going to tell her. I just told her everything. And then she looked at me and said, do you know who God is? She invited me to church. It was the first time that I've heard the complete gospel. So for me, a reasonable response was to give him my life. Redemption. What is redemption? Even if healing occurs, will your scars remain as a painful reminder of a past wound? Or will they serve as evidence that you kept going and are perhaps, shockingly, even stronger than before? Is redemption the idea that you can be not just forgiven, but fully restored? Can redemption actually transform scars into stories that point to grace? I'm your host, Lee Shelton, and this is Unmentionable, a journey through the life of a prodigal porn star and a look behind the curtain of a $100 billion industry. Chapter 7, A Porn Star Walks Into a Church. Society is confused about sex. It subscribes to two contradicting truths, and the dissonance it causes can be seen in media, in clothing, and in just about anywhere money and self-image intersect. The following statements are both true from the world's logic. Sex is everything, and sex is nothing. Sex is everything when it becomes the cure-all for your confidence issues, your relationship problems, or the thing that will bring you unending joy. In society's mind, sex has become a golden ticket to happiness, whether it's something you do with someone else or it's something that you indulge in in isolation. Whatever ails you, sex is the answer. Girls are growing up being told that dressing more provocatively will make them more popular and adored by the guys. For them, sex appeal becomes their gateway to a higher social status. According to society, sex is how you reach nirvana. It's the highest form of pleasure you can experience in this world. Sex is everything. Sex is nothing when it's a one-night stand with someone you just met at a party. It's casual, dirt cheap. When you can pay a few bucks a month to have your own personal feed of girls who create content to your liking. It's a casual fling that brought about the entire concept of friends with benefits. It's just sex. The whole reason that performers in the industry are walking onto set to have sex with a stranger for $800 is because sex is nothing. For much of the world, sex is God. And at the very same time, it's pretty much worthless. This is a concept pulled directly from chapter six of Josh's book, Seven Lies That Will Ruin Your Life. And Josh dedicates an entire chapter to unpacking it. This is the two-faced perspective that society has on sex. And while it's not surprising that the world is confused about it, sometimes even the church's approach to such a controversial topic can be less than ideal. 
Full disclosure, I'm a church kid. I've seen the local church bring so much healing in so many areas, but too often churches at large avoid this very critical topic. This could be for a myriad of reasons, but one thing is for sure, nothing gets resolved in darkness. People asking me to speak, I say yes, we solidify a date, and then some time goes by, and then I get an email saying, well, um, you know, some of the elders in the church or, or someone, someone said something that made us decide we're actually not going to have you speak. I believe sex is an idol. We've made it a God. And the fact that there's something taboo in my past that's tangible that you can point to certainly makes people think, just don't know about that guy. And so the question is, what does the church not talk about enough? That's a long list of things. I think of eating disorders. I think of mental health. I think of uh, sexual addiction, drug addiction, prodigals, like just trying to get kids back that have gone astray. Marriage is adultery. I think of alcoholism, masturbation, self-gratification, sex in general. Like, I mean, I know a lot of married people that aren't having sex and they're so ashamed to reach out for help. Here's our friend, Pastor Jonathan Pacluda, joining us again to talk about the church, pornography, and intimacy. The greatest evil, I think, in America is the deal that pastors strike. That is, hey, you show up and you keep the lights on and, you know, you keep my, my family fed. And in exchange, I won't ask much of you. Uh, you can just, we'll just kind of be the country club and I'll give you some chicken soup for the soul. I'll, I'll entertain you with the scriptures and teach you something and you just be on your way. And uh, that's not the church. The church, uh, ecclesia, where it shows up in the scripture, it, it has more in common with a platoon, like a military troop, than it does, you know, a country club, uh, the, the assembly of the people. We are training people to pretend to be Christians, which is the furthest thing from a Christian. So I think like the, the opposite of a Christian is not a Satan worshiper. The opposite of the church is not the occult. The opposite of the church is the replica church, the fake church, the, the facade of Christianity. Us training our children to look like disciple replicas rather than actually disciples. And so it's like, if I, if my kids, so uh, this is, we're at my home right now. Like this is, this is where we eat as a family. If they see me stand up on Sunday and say, you know, Jesus was loving, kind, compassionate, bold, courageous, the greatest thing, like what we need to do, why, why, why our heart beats in our chest, why we have breath in our lungs is we need to go out there and share the gospel. And then I leave, I walk off that stage and they come into this house and they see me be rude to their mom. They see me never share my faith, never get in the word, never pray, right? They're, they're not going to grow up to be a disciple. They're going to learn how to manage perception, how to pretend to be a disciple. They're gonna learn the game. For a lot of us, we're discipling people in the game, which actually keeps them from being a disciple. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 23. You make other people twice the sons of hell that you are, you whitewashed tombs, you brood of vipers, right? And we're, the modern church is guilty of the same thing. Like that's different than just saying, hey, what we're gonna do is we're just gonna do what this book says and we're just gonna follow Jesus. And when we miss it, we're not gonna try to cover it up. We're gonna shine a bright spotlight on it and say, hey, look at this, we missed it. And we're gonna continue to grow and trust that God is our avenger, that, that he's gonna protect us. You know, we're gonna walk in faithfulness. Many of us who grew up in the church can relate to this. Our Christianity was reduced to an attempt to look like Jesus, but not be like Jesus. And the result is living a life that's incongruent with what we say we believe. I was asked to speak at a, at a seminary and specifically they wanted me to talk about how to reach the next generation because they weren't reaching them. And they said, hey, we want you to come in to tell us how to reach the next generation. You got it. So I go to the seminary, speak on 
uh, teach on reaching the next generation. And I tell this story about clicking on a hashtag uh, in Instagram and that's kind of leading to down a nefarious path of, of girls in bikinis and, and lust. And while I didn't act out on it, uh, I was preaching the next day. And so before I taught, I just confessed that. I just said, hey, I want you guys to know I did this last night. Uh, I don't want to stand up here as a hypocrite. I just, I feel heavy. This is heavy on my heart. So I tell that story to the seminary all under the banner of these guys. They they want authenticity because the line that night was the longest had ever been of people who wanted to talk to me. And they didn't want to talk about the sermon. They want to talk about, wow, I've never heard a pastor confess like that. Uh, uh, me too. I'm struggling. How did you find freedom? I want to find freedom. How did you, you know, resist temptation? I want to resist temptation. So the line was the longest it had ever been. I tell that story. And then the the pastors and the people who are in training at the seminary, they can leave feedback. And the number one feedback that I got from that message was, hey, you can't say that. You can't say pornography in mixed gendered audiences. That's inappropriate. We need to give the appearance of the pursuit of holiness. You can't say that. And as I read that feedback, I began to weep by myself, I began to cry. Not because I was discouraged by them not liking what I shared, but I just had this thought, I thought they will never reach them. Like they they brought me there to teach them how to reach the next generation. And then there's disapproving of how I am just being authentic with the next generation. And they're saying, hey, I'm unwilling to do that and you shouldn't either. And I'm just saying back to you, you will never reach them. 57% of pastors said that they either currently struggle with porn or have in the past. And one in 20 pastors admit to having a porn addiction. Since we've built a culture of pastors who need to keep up with appearances, they often fear for their jobs and they don't feel empowered to seek help to conquer their secret sins. I think a significant part of the inauthenticity in the church is not knowing how to handle some subjects, not teaching the full manifold wisdom of God that we see in the scripture, but standing up there with hip, trendy, topical messages that entertain people, but never really teach them what the Bible says about sex, sexuality, gender. God's word teaches it, but we just avoid those topics. Pornography, right? Sexual immorality, like the scripture has a lot about this. I mean, Paul's first and second letter to the church in Corinth, he covers a lot of this stuff. And so if we're going to teach the whole full Bible, we've got to teach it as it was intended to teach. He talks about orgies in there. You know, it's like if we're trying to avoid that word in church, I mean, there's, there's parts of the Old Testament that are full-blown X-rated, you know? And it's like, if you're teaching the Bible, like you've got to teach these gritty, gritty ideas these pastors that are trying to avoid these topics are actually avoiding the growth that they're so desperate for. Uh, it probably will draw a crowd, but it's, it motive matters most in all things, right? And so it's your why. If you're doing it to draw a crowd, you'll draw a crowd with Jesus, draw a crowd with the gospel, the beauty of the gospel, the death and the resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. I mean, that's, we don't need more than that. The Bible covers some pretty wild topics from King David's adultery to an entire book around a sexual relationship. But how did Jesus handle these difficult subjects? So much of what Jesus did was radical. Like the way that he treated women was radical in his day. Uh, I mean, that you know, one of his miracles, he heals a bleeding woman that she's experiencing menstrual bleeding, which is scandalous in that day, like in that day, in that time, for him to just put that on blast and for the writers to write that down, to document it and then to preserve it for thousands of years that we would read it and learn from it is, is crazy. He's not alone. A Barna study revealed that 93% of pastors see porn as an increasing problem in their church, but only 7% have any plan to deal with it. I believe that pornography has had a bigger impact on the church in America than just about anything else. Sexual abuse is on the rise. Pedophilia is on the rise. Adultery is on the rise. Sexual perversion in general is skyrocketing. 
and at the foundation, the first crack was pornography. You could go to your local convenience store and buy a pack of cigarettes and a porno magazine. Uh, in doing so, you would have to out yourself. Like you would, you would risk running into the lady from church, you know, behind you getting gas or whatever. Like you, you would, you would be in the public space. But then, with with the information age or the technology age, now this stuff is piped into our house, like into the pastor's house. There's a a pipeline that is full of every kind of pornographic image that you can imagine. In fact, it don't, I don't even need a pipeline. Like it can just come straight to the phone that is in my pocket. For every single member in the church, any given Sunday, as I'm preaching to them, in their pockets is a gateway to every kind of perversion that you could possibly think of. And so we are all way more sexualized there's nothing that I could say that would overstate how pornography has impacted the church. Anything that I would say, like we don't have enough time, <laughs> like anything that, that I, I could say would be understated. I don't know that anything has had a more negative impact on the church than how available porn has been made. Other worldviews have combined the concepts of sex and healing. We spoke with Tracy Anyekene about her experience in new age, sex, and the pursuit of healing. I will say the spirit of lust entered my life in second grade when I was taught masturbation. I became addicted to pleasure. I became addicted to the feeling of the pleasure from an orgasm. Having abandonment issues from my father and having no idea about holiness or God or all the things. I was broken, I was alone, and that's the way the enemy kind of just kept pulling me in. I was also introduced to pornography early elementary school years at a family's house. I remember becoming so fascinated by it while also exploring sexuality as a kid, which then led to me becoming very sexually active in my late teenage years, which then led to abuse. And pornography became like the dopamine hit that I thought I needed. Around 2015, I had just physically healed from a traumatic brain injury that left me sick and disabled for about 10 years, found a doctor who was finally able to diagnose me properly, heal my brain, and then also let me know like, hey, when you go home, in order to integrate back into life, you have to heal emotionally and mentally. So I come home and I'm no longer disabled with pain. And that's when the trauma started to surface. Like, wow, I'm carrying a lot of pain. I'm carrying a lot of hurt. And I wanted to find peace. I wanted to find love within myself. I wanted to find joy. I encountered a friend who was heavily involved in New Age and was giving me verbiage to explain what am I seeing in the spirit? What am I feeling in the spirit? And I'm going to teach you how to meditate to spiritually awaken yourself, to find peace, to find joy within yourself. And so I did a lot of demonic things in that space because I didn't know any better. I thought I was experiencing peace. I thought I was experiencing joy. And then I would also at the same time have demonic attacks in the same space of thinking I found peace and joy. New Age is all about the self. I was becoming the God of my own life. And some of those attacks even came through trying to manifest peace and joy where I'm looking in the mirror and I'm declaring words over myself and then literally seeing like a demonic uh, entity in my body. I had very active nightlife <laughs> uh, just in the spirit realm where shadows would be all around me. I'd feel paralyzed. I would feel like I was being torn dimensionally in the middle of the night and could actually feel the war for my spirit. And ultimately I wanted to find my heavenly father. I just didn't have the language for it yet. One thing about New Age is sexuality is completely linked to spiritual ascension and spiritual awakening. It's all about 
energy, right? And healing of trauma. So I had random people, particularly older men who are not good for me in my life, tell me that if I were to have an orgasm, it would heal my brain injury. I could become one with the universe through having orgasms and through sexual energy. The abuse covered up as healing is really disturbing. There's so much damage to your soul and to your spirit when you're just being lied to saying that this is this is where peace and joy is found. Jesus quite literally rescued me out of the spirit realm. I was meditating and all I can say is the veil was lifted. And then I could see pornography for what it was. I could see it for the evil that it was, the manipulation that it was, the bondage that it was. I was abandoned by my earthly father at a young age. And so the fact that when the Lord revealed himself to me and the first characteristic was Abba Father is one of the most beautiful redemptions I could possibly imagine for myself and other people. And so hand in hand, me choosing Jesus and asking for purity also went with giving up pornography and giving up masturbation. And that meant throwing away the sex toys. That meant burning pornography and never going back. And that was like a huge breakthrough in my soul. <laughs> and he restored all of the things that the enemy took and manipulated and oppressed. Um, so that's like one of the things I'm so grateful for is like, Someone who's been manipulated by the spirit of lust in second grade can be completely redeemed and restored by Jesus and walk away from the things that are harmful, like pornography. Christian media tends to make neat, sterile content wrapped in a pretty bow. Too often, we shy away from the real, uncomfortable, and disquieting. At Compel Studio, we don't believe sweeping these subjects under the rug is helping. We're creating content that doesn't avoid tough subjects, but leans into them, exposing darkness and discussing things we desperately need to. In scripture, we see Jesus boldly confronting uncomfortable topics. His words provoke and challenge the status quo. And we believe it's time for content made by followers of Jesus to do the same. If you believe that too, you can join us and sign up for updates for all our future releases by going to compel.studio. Josh walked into a church and heard the gospel for the first time in his life, and his response was to begin following Jesus. Almost immediately, he felt called to share this hope that had just been shared with him. And so on Tuesday, he came back to the church where his life had been forever transformed just two days before. I'm, wa I'm walking into this church and I'm like, hey, I'm looking for a pastor. Um, I would love to connect with someone. And they point me upstairs. The executive pastor of the church, he was there and he invites me into his office. And I'm like, man, I got a story to share with you. I want to share with you what happened to me, you know, last Sunday. And I feel like the story that I have, I'm supposed to share but I feel like I need to be better equipped to communicate the Bible, to tell my story well. When we talk and he's like, that's amazing. And he, he prays for me. And I was late to a meeting and I'm answering emails in the hallway, basically just overwhelmed. This is Andrew Yates. He was a pastor at the church at that time. But there was an executive pastor. He's my boss's boss. And he comes down the hallway with a guy I've never met before and goes, hey, Andrew, this is Josh. I'm like, okay, hi, Josh. How are you doing? And I'm, I'm like, I've got to answer this email. I'm busy. Uh, Andrew, Josh needs uh, to have someone disciple him. He needs someone to, to teach him how to read the Bible. And if it was anybody other than my boss's boss, I would have said, I'm sorry, I got too much going on. But I mean, I, you, you just couldn't say no. And so I said, uh, good to meet you, Josh. We exchanged our, our contact info and we just scheduled time to meet the next week. But my thought initially was, yeah, I've got maybe 25 minutes of here's how to study the Bible, have a good life. But uh, as soon as I met him, Josh, he told me like a very, very, very little of his story. But he said, uh, I am totally committed. You say, here's what we got to do. I will jump as high and as far as you say, whatever it means to be a fully devoted follower of Jesus, I'm ready to be there. 
And I felt immediately the Holy Spirit convicted me to say, um, you've got somebody who's hungry. You've got somebody who's humble. This is your job. This is the job of a pastor. And so uh, it was ended up being more than just a 25-minute, here's how to study the Bible conversation. Quickly became, we're going to meet every week, at least once a week, uh, for a couple months and talk about what are the things it looks like to have a foundation of faith and to build on that foundation and not just have it and be healthy, but able to support others uh, based on that foundation. The first time we met, I'll never forget this. We're at this coffee shop and Josh is like, I'm not, I can't, I can't eat any of this. This stuff is, I mean, he's, he's a CrossFit coach. I'm like, all right, well, I won't eat this muffin. And he slid the muffin across the counter and say, hey, before we even get to the Bible, I want you to give me 10 observations on this muffin. And he just starts listing things out. He's like, it's in a plastic wrapper. Uh, it looks shiny on the outside wrapper. Uh, it's kind of got a sharp edge. I'm like, great, give me another 10. Great, give me another 10. Great, give me another 10. He was not kidding. Trying my very best, I used every descriptive thing I could find about this muffin. He wanted me to literally tell him a hundred things about this muffin. And, and so then after we've observed this muffin, which is such a silly, simple thing, we can make some interpretations and we can make some applications about this muffin. Um, I can interpret, is this healthy? And he's like, well, that's how deep we're going to dig into the Bible before we talk about what it means. We're going to look at what it actually says. I mean, that is the bread and butter of reading the Bible. But once you've done this with a muffin, you're like, man, Bible study, I can do that. I can observe a, a verse and say, who is talking? Who is hearing? Is there a command? Is there an action? Is there, what's the circumstance? And you can sit and soak because when you go to apply that after having interpreted that, if you've soaked in it for that long, I mean, you're going to be way, 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 way more confident than otherwise. He taught me how to learn well. And then he taught me how to teach well. And the way he did that was both at the same time because he would teach me something and then he would ask me to teach it to him. Uh, I don't even know if I realized how young as a Christian he was when we first met. And him challenging me to explain these foreign theological concepts. It was challenging, but I fell in love with it. To going from having no foundation to having one, that is a life-changing, life-altering thing. Josh and Andrew's relationship started to outgrow their hourly meeting slot during the week. Like every healthy discipleship, Josh and Andrew were doing life together and using that brotherhood to grow to become more like Jesus. But he came to several CrossFit classes in support of me. And, you know, he was my friend, um, but also to glean from me. And he was like, man, you're, you're a great coach. And here's some of the things that I see in you. And here are some of the things that you do well. He allowed me to understand what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. Following Jesus isn't following a list of rules. It's surrendering to the person of Jesus. It was through this understanding that while Josh hadn't grown up with an earthly father, God saw him as a son. We met probably once a week um, and we would say, hey, how are you doing? Um, and I mean, I mean, I would share, how am I doing? What are the things where I'd say, man, this week was the time, man, this was the point where I was really close to Christ. And then there was the time this week where maybe I denied discipleship. And I mean, it could be small, it could be big, but um, we would just lean into that. And then we'd say, okay, when we left last time, we said, hey, we want to grow in whatever this thing is, either this reading, thinking through this, praying through this, engaging community. And I would just go and just hang with him in his office. And we had like a lot of time that um, we would dig into stuff. You know, we got to the point where we went from who is, you know, who is God? And we're, you know, diving into like pretty simplistic theological concepts, like, you know, all, all the covenants and, and how that's, you know, important to understand. And, and then, you know, I, th I would say like a year, year and a half in, then all of a sudden, like we're, we're diving as deep as we've got um, basic biblical Greek and we are studying the first chapter of the book of John for a year. This is what discipleship looks like. Andrew has been equipping Josh to become not just a disciple, but a disciple maker. What does it look like for me to, to be a disciple and to make a disciple, to help someone grow in their discipleship of Jesus? 
It is just as simple as saying, I'm going to connect with one person. And I, and I can, I mean, I can totally sympathize with church leaders that are too busy. I can totally sympathize with that. But no matter how busy you are, you have time for one lunch or one breakfast once a week. I can disciple one guy and say, by the time we're done, my goal is not for you to grow as a disciple of Jesus. It's for you to grow as a disciple of Jesus with the expectation that, that that's what you were called to help someone else do. What we're going to do, you go do that with someone else. And so like when I'm teaching Josh, here's how you study the Bible. Uh, every time it's like, all right, now how would you explain this to someone else? And I totally agree with John, um, where he said that the disciple that Jesus loves, super close to Jesus, hanging out with him for years, he said at the end of his life, I have no greater joy than to see my children walking in the truth. Uh, the joy that's available to every grandparent, you know, you meet a grandparent and they tell you, I'm a grandparent, let me show you my kids. They love their grandkids. That joy is so pure that it's like, you, I, mean, you, I mean, if you could put it in a bottle, I mean, that'd be it. But that joy is available to every Christian. If you invest in one person over lunch once a week and they, and I say, Hey, I'm, I'm investing in you, not for your sake to invest someone else. And I'm happy to help walk alongside you as you walk along some, someone else, but we're not done until you've walked someone else through this. The joy is not seeing God work in someone else's life. Like that's amazing. But to see that person multiply in dozens of lives and dozen communities and dozens of families, that's, that's a joy that scales. The, the joy of somebody reaching out to me and saying, my life was changed because of Josh. They don't even know who I am for me to have just so much joy. Every follower that I have on social media, that's exciting. But every follower that he has on social media, who I know their lives are being changed through him, that's, that's next level joy. I was like, an addict, you know, just like I, I couldn't wait to meet with him. It was something I was excited about. The days that I knew that we were going to meet, I was like really looking forward to it. Like I couldn't get out of the gym fast enough. I started giving away um, classes that I was coaching. I felt burdened by personal training clients, not because I didn't want to serve them, because it was like taking away time that I could be with Andrew. And I was just obsessed. I was just obsessed. Josh clearly felt a calling on his life. And that calling was reinforced through his dreams. I've had a dream multiple times in my life where it's almost like there's a movie that you watch and then it turns off and then you pick it back up and you start from the same place, but then uh, it, it continues on a little further the next time you watch it. The dream is I am walking and I have a shield and there are arrows being shot at me and I'm walking towards a mountain. The first time I had this dream, I was walking and the arrows were coming and a devil-like creature stabbed me in the chest and I woke up with heartburn for the first time. I was eight years old when that happened. I had that dream again when I was 11. Kind of the same thing, but I made it a little further before he stabbed me in the chest. The third time I had it was the night that I gave my life to Jesus. And I'm walking and the arrows are being shot at me. There's there's no Satan stabbing me, but the arrows are now on fire, but they're not hitting me. And I'm getting closer to this mountain. There's a lion with me. And strangely enough, he's in front. He's not behind me. He's in front of me. The mountain starts to crack in half and there's water and there's people. There's a boat that needs to be constructed, that needs to exist to save the people. And then the next time I have it, there's a group of people going the wrong way. And there's some people that are in the water and need to be saved. And that's, you know, that's currently where we're at. But when I had that dream, it made me think, I have protection that I've never had before. And I've got something to share that's meant to be spoken into brokenness. And there's a cleansing that comes from water. Even though these dreams didn't make a lot of sense to Josh previously, one thing was sure. He was no longer walking alone and he now had a clear purpose. In reality, Josh knew he wanted the knowledge in his head to match the passion in his heart. I discovered biblicaltraining.org, which is pretty much, you can go to seminary for free, but there's no like rhyme or reason to anything. You just have access to everything. 
And I just started just consuming stuff and then uh, started writing, started writing talks, sermons, like concepts. Josh used his passion for the Bible and the training he was receiving to go deeper and start writing. And he found ways to tie other areas of his life into ministry. What I loved about coaching CrossFit is at the beginning of a workout, I'm going to explain what we're doing. I'm going to explain why we're doing it. And, but I would do it in the structure of know, feel, do. I want you to know this information. I want you to feel this emotion about it, this ownership, uh, this, you know, this, this want to work hard, not because you have to, because you get to. And if you do, there's going to be an outcome in the end that's beneficial for you. But if you don't put in the work, you know, you won't get the result. And it requires integrity. It requires self-awareness. It requires uh, doing the thing that you want to stop doing, but you keep moving because you you know that it's good for you. And then, you know, really like the, the do would be taking that knowledge and taking those emotions and, and applying it to the workout. But it's things that I've done and things that I've learned that were applicable, like with what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. Community was an important part of Josh and Hope's relationship. They got involved with several small groups. So I was in a small group with guys that I started leading, and then Hope was in a small group, and then Hope and I were in a a co-ed group. So we had three small groups. And on top of that, I started teaching a Bible study at the gym um, on Tuesday nights. I, I have an obsessive personality already. And it's like, whatever I love, I like, I love it so much. Uh, if you've ever tasted and smelled my grandma's biscuits, you'll be like, man, this is amazing. And then your second thought in my mind should be, man, I want someone else to have this. And that's how I felt about Jesus. It's like, man, uh, this is amazing. It's changed my life. And uh, if you love someone, they want to experience the joy that you're experiencing now. So that's, that's what I want. And this question came up, which gets asked a lot. And it's really two questions. How does Hope not compare herself to the multitude of people that I've been with that are porn stars that have these augmented bodies? And secondly, how does she not have some level of contempt for me because number one, I've lived this life where I've done all these things and the things that I've done, my choices, they have a tangible existence on the internet. You you can you can point to the thing that he did. You could you could point to the, you know, him doing these things. How do you not have any kind of contempt or frustration or hold any kind of grudge towards him because of that? And her response was, I believe the Bible is true. And 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that person that you're talking about is dead and gone and he's a new creation. But also, why would I look at him in the way that Satan sees him? Why would I use language that Satan uses to just try to destroy him? I choose to see him as God sees him. Romans 12, 2. The conforming of the world would say, you would view a person by what you know that they've done and there's tangible evidence for the things that I've done. Yet, the renewing of our mind says that regardless of what I've done, there is a God that became flesh that lived a perfect life and died on the cross and his blood covers a multitude of sins. So she doesn't see me through the lens of guilt and shame. She doesn't see me through my brokenness. She doesn't see me through my worst mistakes. She sees me through the perfect son of God. She sees me as God sees me. And when God sees me, he sees his son. While he was growing in his newfound faith, changes were happening at a core level. I had... uh not, not a terrible mouth, but I had somewhat of a foul mouth. I was very hard on myself, um, very easily um, angered, struggled with anger a lot. I was ashamed of my past, but, but there were times that I wore it like a badge of honor. Dramatic change started to take place. Started to talk differently, started to talk about different things, started to live differently. So it, it, it presented itself to a lot of people to say, 
hey man, <laughs> what's going on with you? Why, like you're acting very differently. You're talking very differently. You seem different. And it was a it was an opportunity to to share. Doors started to open up for Josh to share his story. A year and a half, maybe two years after me like giving my life to Jesus, I did a radio show and I spoke at a church. When I did the radio show, I didn't feel like I was preaching or, or doing, I feel, I feel like I was just sitting with someone with headphones on telling them my story. Um, and then he asked me uh, a few months later, he's like, I'm doing a fundraiser for my show. We do it every year. Would you mind, you know, essentially sharing with me what you shared? It was like an end of year giving and, you know, there were several hundred people there. So I quickly got into the mindset where like, I need to make people cry. I need to make people laugh. I need to put on a performance. And I'll never forget the way that I felt, almost like feeling conviction, like I'm making this about me. And what the anxiety that you feel is because you feel like you need to prove something. And I started to get kind of like afraid. And I stepped to the podium once he introduced me and I felt like I heard God whisper to me, I love you. And I remembered I didn't need to do anything. So instead of giving the talk that I had prepared, I flipped the paper over and gave a 50,000 foot view of this guy that was searching for something that I didn't find and it led to a lot of brokenness in my life and I hurt a lot of people but I found out that there was a God that loved me so much that he sent his one and only son to die for me so that I didn't have to perish and I get access to eternal life because of the perfection of Jesus it certainly didn't come out like that it was like the best I ever felt in my life I can't I can't even like compare it to anything, but it's just like this is not only my most favorite thing I've ever done, but this is what I want to do the rest of my life. He knew he wanted to preach God's word, but it was clear that everything from his knowledge to his motivation needed time to develop. I didn't get another opportunity to preach for like three years. And I'm so glad. I'm so glad that I didn't because I was still so broken. There have just been opportunities for me to do the right thing for the wrong reason. I might have not been doing the wrong things, but I was certainly thinking them. Um, my thought life was a mess. Um, I was still, I still struggled with anger. I thought inappropriate things often. And, and interestingly enough, it was tied to anger. If I was at a gym and someone was dressed a certain way, I would find myself thinking things I shouldn't have. And I was really frustrated at myself that I would think that way. And I, and I didn't want to see people that way. And that behavior generally would take me back to like Googling myself and things like that. Like the enemy desperately wanted to still kill and destroy what God wanted to do in my life. Finding a partner who shares your dreams is a powerful thing. And it can take you further than you could ever go alone. It was beautiful just getting to know her and her patience with with me and, and my awkwardness. Because for most of my life, if meeting someone at their house and watching a movie, 100% the assumption was sex. And if that 100% was not going to happen, it was challenging, but beautiful at the same time. She's low key. She doesn't like extravagant things, like doesn't like it when I make a big deal about her birthday. Like she loves tulips and carrot cake. Like, I mean, she's as simple as it gets. When I proposed to her, I was like, I, I think I want to do it at the school because I know that she loves her kids and like they would think it was awesome um, if I could like do it in her, in her classroom. Um, but I convinced the principal to put on a fake pep rally and 
uh, I got to the school and I had flowers and I had the ring. And I remember like hiding in the school with um, this camera guy. And then uh, right before it, I called my mom. And I remember I was like, I was like, I think I'm gonna like puke or something. I was so nervous. And they introduced the guest speaker and it's me. And she literally like covers her hand and like whispers. She's like, what are you doing here? And I said, I'm the guest speaker. <laughs> I've got my hand behind my back and flowers in my hand. Like you, I mean, it was pretty obvious what was happening, but I proposed to her in front of, you know, her kids at the, at that pep rally. And, and uh, I remember he let her go home early and we went and like got lunch or whatever. Josh and Hope were preparing to start a life together. And unlike the relationships he had while he was in the industry, their relationship was founded on real love which required sacrifice and selflessness. I remember, so we were taking premarital counseling and they were asking all these questions and um, we read um, seven love languages and it kind of like gave me like an aha moment because, um, I mean, again, like God used this to minister me in in a big way. Her primary love language was quality time. And I was like, quality time. Yeah, you like me to take you to a quality meal, to t- to watch a quality movie, you know, what I and I was talking with her about that and she wanted me completely disconnected and she just wanted all of my attention and all of my time. Not for all day or anything like that, but just like in that moment, the only thing that I could give her that she wanted most was me. And I didn't get that. Because still I was wrestling with how could the most valuable thing that I could give you be me? Like me being present was the greatest present I could give her. There was nothing I could buy her or do for her to replace what she wanted most from me. And that really made me feel like somebody. Like not in a proud, like, flex way, it made me feel like I was worth something that I didn't see or understand about myself. When someone sees something in you that you don't see in yourself, it's like having a mirror that shows you the potential that's invisible to your own eyes. So after I had studied with Andrew um, for a few years and did the um, biblicaltraining.org, I want to do ministry for the rest of my life. So for me to be able to do the thing that I wanted to do most, I knew that a systematic education regarding theology would be helpful for me. I think it was a few people that went to Liberty. It was like Liberty, DTS, and then Southeastern was a few miles away. So I just started looking at options and I was researching that and my brother does not follow Jesus. And I heard a testimony from Nabil Karishi that just rocked my world. Nabil Karishi grew up in the Muslim faith, but has an incredible testimony of his journey to following Jesus. And I was like, man, uh, he's articulating apologetics in a way that like I understand so much. And then started Googling a few classes and um, saw that a lot of his lectures were tied to some of the early like apologetic classes. And I was like, maybe this is where I want to go. And I looked into it and it seemed like the right fit. We began this podcast with a young man from the East Coast who had West Coast dreams. In pursuit of those dreams, he joined an industry that was a counterfeit version of everything he had envisioned, and that led him down a path he quickly regretted. After escaping the porn industry, he returns to the East Coast with his sights set on helping to dismantle an industry that had brought him and many he loved so much pain. He'll do this by boldly addressing unmentionable topics within the church and taking a stand on Capitol Hill. I actually had a glimmer of hope that something would happen where I could take one video down. And if I could help one person get one video taken down, um, maybe you couldn't get all of it taken down. But the tangible aspect of that feeling of redemption, it births hope 
and people and the person that wants to give up, if they have a glimmer of hope, it's game over. Next time on Unmentionable. The first time I spoke at Capitol Hill, the bill that I was advocating for was around age verification. You're shutting down access to anything that is sexually explicit and to get access to it, you've got to provide government issued ID. It protects children. Five states implemented it. Consumption went down 65%. A former porn star saying that porn is bad really ticks a lot of people off that watch porn. Unmentionable was written by Lee Shelton, Jacob Jolly, and Tyler McKinney. Directed and hosted by Lee Shelton. Art direction by Jacob Jolly. Kathleen Terrell is our production executive. Edited by Tyler McKinney and assisted by Jacob Jolly. Original score and composition by Tyler McKinney. Special thanks to our guests, Pastor Jonathan Pakluda, Andrew Yates, and Tracy Onyekene. This episode wouldn't have happened without Alex Lewis, Craig Dennison, Tim Ross, Justin Motes, and of course, Joshua Broom. Thank you for trusting us with your story. Unmentionable is a production of Compel Studio. Christian media tends to make neat, sterile content wrapped in a pretty bow. Too often we shy away from the real, the uncomfortable, and the disquieting. At Compel Studio, we don't believe that sweeping these subjects under the rug is helping. We're creating content that doesn't avoid these tough subjects, but leans into them, exposing darkness and discussing things that we desperately need to. In scripture, we see Jesus boldly confronting uncomfortable topics. His words provoke and challenge the status quo, and we believe it's time for content made by Jesus followers to do the same. If you believe that too, you can join us and sign up for updates on all our future releases by going to compel.studio.